what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Kathy Griffin has been through it. Don't get me wrong, like in the conversation you're about to hear, she's funny, she's self-deprecating, she's energetic, she's an amazing storyteller. But she's gone through it. Just to catch you up, Kathy back in the 90s was about as big a star as you could possibly be. She had a big HBO stand-up special, she had sold-out tours, she had a, a big guest-starring role on Seinfeld, which she has a great story about today, by the way. You know, sitcoms, magazine covers, a big hit TV show called My Life on the D-List, everything she dreamt of growing up as a kid. Then in 2017, things change. If you didn't hear about it, Kathy's part of this photo shoot where she's holding up this bloody mask of former U.S. President Donald Trump. That leads to her saying she was federally investigated for conspiracy to assassinate the president, then blacklisted in Hollywood, lost a lot of friends. Then her mom dies, then her sister. Then she's diagnosed with lung cancer, which leads to half her lung being removed, then a divorce, and then a diagnosis of PTSD. Like I said, Kathy Griffin has been through it. But now she's come out on the other side with a new stand-up tour and, more importantly, um, perspective on everything that she's gone through. And like I said, lots to say. Here's my conversation with Kathy Griffin. Kathy Griffin, uh, welcome to the show. How are you? Honey, I'm glad to be alive and working. I can't believe I'm talking to you. It's been six long years, my friend. Six long years where the phone didn't ring and it just started to ring again and I'm going back on tour. Oh, so not a whole lot in the past six years. Honey, nothing. It's been a living nightmare. It was the Trump thing and the DOJ investigation and the no-fly list. And then, of course, it was prescription pill addiction and a suicide attempt and a 5150 psych hold. And it was lung cancer. And I have half a lung on my left side. But when I step on stage and I'm lucky enough to play theaters, and I say that because clubs are just rough. They just are. People are drinking and they're, you know, tougher on women and stuff. But when I hit that stage, I am home. I am comfortable, I'm home, and I've only done four shows so far, but the audiences have been amazing. I did two in Vegas, and they were sold out at the Mirage. I was so proud and thrilled. And I did then I did two on a gay cruise, which of course means I'll have to talk about the gay cruise in my Canadian shows, because you um, may think you know partying. You might think you're some badass. No, honey. Until you've survived a gay cruise, you haven't really lived. And so talk about what happens on the ship stays on the ship. I mean, it's Sodom and Gomorrah out at sea. So I even talk about that. Like, I might just read from the itinerary and just describe (laughs) the Guns and Hoses theme party or one of the many activities happening on the ship. And, you know, I just want everyone to know, like, The number one thing I've gotten from social media besides hate and negativity, because there is actually a good side of social media, is I'm so thrilled that people have said, we don't want you to hold back. 
We don't want you to have been scared into thinking you should just go on stage and do jokes about airline peanuts or the difference between New York and LA or blah, blah, blah. And so I'm going to get out there and I just want you to know I'm still um, in trouble constantly and I have not learned my lesson. <laughs> um, I want to go back a little bit to the, the sort of the, the beginning of this, this whole thing. So my understanding is so when you grew up in Illinois, you were an extra in a commercial for the Chicago White Sox. And that's what like that's that's what sort of sparks your career in show business. And then you decide to move to L.A. Is that right? My big break was playing the Chicago White Sox theme song, which was Na Na Hey Hey on a kazoo. So that's called talent, my friend. Not everybody can sell baseball tickets with a kazoo, but darn it, I did, and I'm damn proud of it. So that's how I got into the union. But when I first came to Los Angeles, I was an extra for like five years where you straight up made 25 bucks a day. But it taught me a lot about like, set etiquette and who's where and what's a video village and what the director does. And then I went to the Lee Strasberg Theater Academy for two years where they basically said, we know you're funny, so we're going to teach you drama, which was definitely a stretch. And then I went into the Groundlings comedy troupe and I got to work with the greats, like the late great Phil Hartman and Will Ferrell. In fact, I was Will's teacher at the Groundlings. Isn't that funny? That's wild. What was he like as a student? Hilarious. Like he and Sherry O'Terry were my students and they were so funny then. But I have to say, I thought they even got better on SNL because sometimes people are better in like their theatrical home. Yeah. But so many good people have come out of the groundlings. And I was in that company for like 12 years. So I come from a true improv background. I actually don't have a stand up background. In fact, it was my fellow groundling. Lisa Kudrow, Phoebe from Friends, yeah. who actually said to me a life-changing thing. She said, look, you're good at characters and you're good at this, but you're really funniest as yourself. And when you tell just a story from your life, I'm laughing more than anything. And I was like, okay, I'll try stand-up. And that's honestly how I got into stand-up. I, I was like 35 when I tried stand-up for the first time. So so Lisa Kudrow says that to you. You're, so, you let me, so you, so you moved from Chicago to Los Angeles. By the way, the story I heard is that you talked your parents into moving with you to Los Angeles. Is that right? I um, used a little trickery. And what I did was my parents, by the way, who never met a drink they didn't love. So they were probably halfway through a box of wine when I had this discussion with them. But I convinced them that they wanted to move from Chicago to have nicer weather. Very Chicago thing, right? And they were going to either live in San Diego or in L.A. And I knew that there wasn't acting work in San Diego. So I convinced my father there were more golf courses in L.A. <laughs> and they bought it. And we all lived in this tiny apartment together. And I this is so embarrassing. I lived at home with my parents in an apartment until I was 28 years old. And that means I was like bringing guys back and banging them when my parents were in the living room. <laughs> I was such a whore. I kind of miss my whore phase, but luckily I have to remind myself I had a good, healthy one. So, so you, so, so you, so you go through the Groundlings. It's a real scene at the, at the time. Lisa Kudrow says to you, "You're funny when you tell stories. You should start doing stand up. You don't start doing stand up till you're 35." So, what do you do? Do you go down to the the comedy store? Do you go to the improv and you just get on stage? How does it go? 
I went to the store, I went to the improv and I just, my style just wasn't anything like that. And I only played clubs for like a year. Um, and I was lucky enough to headline because I was on a TV show at the time. So I had a little name value, but clubs are just rough because, you know, you're at round tables and half them are, they have their back to you and people are ordering drinks. And when you're a woman, I mean, to this day, you can call your local comedy club on a Saturday, ask for their lineup, and they'll still probably have like nine guys and one girl. Yeah. And so I started doing stand-up with Janine Garofalo and other people I met that I felt like Dana Gould and I felt like had a different style of stand-up than typical setup and punchline. So I didn't do well when I would do open mic nights. I mean, I would do well every so often, but usually I bombed. And so I started renting small theaters myself and just researching co literally coffee houses and I would put on shows and I was so convinced nobody would come that I would only cha charge a dollar. So if nothing else, I was like, look, you may not think I'm the funniest person, but I'm a dollar. <laughs> you can you can get an evening's entertainment for a dollar. And guess what? Every show sold out had a line around the block. And that's really how it started. Then I got cast on a sitcom and then I was on my way. And frankly, things really changed for me when I got my first HBO special and then was on, you know, category for my life on the D list. Is that, hold on, when did the Seinfeld thing happen? Cause I think I, I first found out about you through suddenly Susan. And then when I was, when I was younger watching TV in back home. And then I remember you on Seinfeld, right? You did two episodes of Seinfeld. Uh, I didn't just do two. They wrote the second episode for me because on the first episode, my character, Sally Weaver, wasn't a comedian. This isn't the sauce that I asked for. That's right. It's a special gourmet sauce. The pride of Memphis. No, no, I want the one in the little bottle with the guy on it that looks like Charles Grodin. This is much better. And frankly, in Memphis, we think that other sauce is kind of a joke. I know it's a joke. It's supposed to be a joke. Now I'm going on the Charles Grodin show with nothing. Nothing! Then, in real life, I do my first HBO special and I tell this story about Jerry and how when I was on Seinfeld, he was just a dick. And then I was like walking around in my head, just like an insane person going, you know what? F you, Jerry Seinfeld. Man. You can't sign your name. And I'm like getting really mad and I write, you know? So anyway, then, um, so then Jerry and I are in a fight, except he doesn't know it and couldn't care less. So, <laughs> and shock to me, but Jerry actually thought it was funny. And so nobody had ever like made fun of Jerry or sort of said anything negative because he's like, you know, he's an American treasure and the show's iconic. And so they wrote the next episode where Sally Weaver becomes a stand-up who does nothing but make fun of Jerry. And that was based on my life. And I was thrilled. What, that must have been an amazing experience to have that. I mean, to have that happen where you do this thing. So you get cast. You do this thing where you make fun of Jerry Seinfeld. You have to remember this is in the 90s when like. 96. There's no one more famous than, than the cast of Seinfeld. There's no, no one. one more powerful than Jerry Seinfeld. You get up. You, you make fun of him a little bit. The, he, he, you do this, I think the show in, in, in the show, you do this one, one woman show called Jerry Seinfeld is the devil or something like that. Yes. 
Jerry, well, Larry wrote that. Larry David wrote that. He's like, I think you should call your show Jerry Seinfeld is the devil. And I said, well, Larry, he is. You just don't know it. <laughs> and, you know, like that kind of rapport. But when I got to go back and do that second Seinfeld, that was amazing because it was the week Jerry had announced he was quitting the show. So he was on the cover of Time magazine. People were trying to sneak on the set. And I was so nervous because I haven't seen Jerry since the first time I was on where he was a dick. Now I'm on Suddenly Susan. I'm literally like down the street doing a show. And I walk on set and Jerry was alone in the diner set. And he's sitting in a booth and it's the set was like half dark because they had to rehearse with me after I was done with Suddenly Susan. So they stayed late for me, which was really sweet. And I just hear, well, 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 <laughs> look what the cat dragged in. And it was Jerry. And I just thought, you know what? I either cower or I go for him. And I was like, what a dick. And he laughed. <laughs> and I had just one of the, sorry. That's all right. Four dogs. Four dogs. That's all right. That's all right. So, yeah, I had one of the greatest weeks of my career being around those four people and then talking about the legacy and what it had been like and how they, they got bad ratings at first and Warren Littlefield still kept them on. And it was an amazing week. You know, it was cool to be in their presence. I learned a lot. We'll be right back. I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We are the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Uh, You're in the middle of my conversation with the comedian Kathy Griffin. She's been talking about the huge high her career had in the 90s and 2000s. She was kind of everywhere, right? TV shows, magazines, late night shows. In the next part of our conversation, you're going to hear her talk about how all of this became the huge backlash she received in 2017 when she posted a photo of herself holding a bloody mask of former U.S. President Donald Trump's head. Her career came to a stop pretty much for a few years. I wanted to ask about the time leading up to that backlash. When Kathy was flying high... Did she feel like she was everywhere she wanted to be? Yes. That was by far the best part of my career. Because remember, the Trump thing hadn't happened. My life on the D-list was winning Emmys, which was, it's still mind-blowing to me. Because remember, the industry that so rewarded me prior to the Trump photo is the same people that for some reason could not deal with that photo and decided to put me in a showbiz timeout for six years. Yeah. So it's it's one of the reasons I think I got that PTSD diagnosis is it's just a mindful to have so many people turn on you 
that you were earning money for. I mean, I made a lot of money for NBC Universal, and I wish they would put my life on the D list on Peacock and my specials because, well, I bought them back, so I now own my library. But um, the best part is not one single person has made an offer to buy it. And I thought I was going to be like a gazillionaire with my expensive library. But I think if I croak on stage, that library is going to be worth a fortune. So goals. <laughs> goals, goals. 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 Goals for the in memoriam in memoriam tribute. You, 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 oh, yes. I've, I've fantasized about it for years. But in, in all seriousness, that that's a, I mean, it's not surprising to me when you go through that thing with, with, with the Trump photo. And like I said, we talked about that last time you were here. What I'm curious about is you get this diagnosis of, of PTSD. What is that like to hear? Is that like affirming? Is that like, oh, there's something, okay, I knew there was something up? I knew there was something up because after I had my cancer surgery where they took out, you know, half my lung, and, you know, I, I, I guess anybody who survives cancer kind of cheated death. And for some reason, I'm cancer free. Uh, I got injured during the surgery. So I have a permanently paralyzed left vocal cord. And now I use a special headset mic and it's better. And I feel like Janet Jackson. But I think it was the fact that the Trump thing metaphorically made me lose my voice. And then the cancer surgery literally made me lose my voice. So I've actually had five surgeries on my cord. I just had one last Tuesday. And this is the most voice I've had. Yeah. And I think it was the mind of being such a happy, grateful workaholic and coming out of, like you said, that period of doing specials, the D-list, award shows, talk shows, and then stopped cold overnight in the middle of a 50 city tour, can't make a living, can't board a plane. And, you know, year after year thinking, oh, it'll be over now. And during that time, I was pitching every kind of show you can imagine. I was pitching game shows and talk shows and scripted shows and reality shows. And I had not one, but two executives. I won't tell you which which networks or streamers they're from. But honestly, I appreciated their honesty because two separate ones just said, we know you're funny and we know you're an earner, but you're just too toxic right now. We have too many Trumpers that watch our network or streaming service. And honestly, that was a relief. I said, okay, that's at least something I can understand. That's better than thinking I suck. That's better than going, God, maybe I was never funny. Maybe the Emmys are fake, maybe blah, blah, blah. And so it was a lot of like bullshit that still swirls around me. And I have to tell these theater owners, do not look at the Facebook comments when you're doing my show. I can tell you right now, they're going to be love or hate. It's either going to be, you go girl, we love her, or it's going to be, she's a terrorist who should be in Guantanamo Bay with Joe Biden. Um, by the way, these are the same people who think that Joe Biden is not the real Joe Biden in the White House, yeah. but he is an actor wearing a Joe Biden suit. It, it, it sounds like you have... Because last time I talked to you, Kathy, I'll be I'll be candid with you. Last time I talked to you, it was 2018, and yeah. you were still, I mean, in it. You were in and it. you were going you were going through it. Yeah. Already, I can tell you have a different perspective on the whole thing. Now. Oh, thank you, thank you. No, I'm 
shockingly positive and I have nothing but gratitude because when you've had something you love taken away for so long for such a bullshit reason it just feels good to just gig like I got my first show in Des Moines and that's meaningful because that's one of those cities that I was told I could never play again I'm going to Des Moines Friday and I'm going to Omaha Saturday and I'm going to Kansas City Sunday and I am so thrilled and guess who never banned me Canada. You guys were literally the first to go, uh, we don't get what the fuss is. Come on up here. You're welcome. And duh, I'm not stupid. I played Canada before I played the US. So naturally, I was like, well, let me go to Canada first. And the Canadian audiences are roll with it, laugh at themselves, laugh at others. They're smarter than Americans. They get it. And I don't care if I said that. I don't care if the headline is Kathy Griffin says Canadians are smarter. Yeah, no shit. Hold on. Let me, I did hear. Yes. With this new show. And I found this really interesting. I got it, I got it down here. That um, there's no Trump in the new show. There's no Trump in the yeah. new stand-up show. That's That feels meaningful, Kathy. It is meaningful because I did a whole tour about it. I did a movie called Kathy Griffin, A Hell of a Story. And I, it's, part of it is even a documentary. And I really told that story. And I am confident that the people coming to see me in Canada actually know everything from the cancer to the divorce, to the PTSD, to the pill stuff I'm in recovery for. But, it, 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 but, it, to, but back to that, it feels, it feels meaningful that you were like, you know, I'm not going to put Trump in this thing. I'm not, everyone is expecting me maybe to talk about if this thing. If he does something really crazy yeah. that day, like, you know, when obviously my good friend E. Jean Carroll got her $83.3 million judgment last week. Like if I was on stage that night, I would totally mention it for a few minutes. But I don't have like a bit about him. And I, I definitely have covered that territory in detail. Well, I mean, so let, let, let's let's close off that way. I mean, you, you just you just mentioned it. You, you've gone through a lot over the past few years. Too much. Lost, lost your sister, lost your mom. Yeah, my uh, mom, I know. Uh, diagnosed with lung cancer, lost half a lung. You, you sound great, but the, you, you were talking about the damage to your vocal cords in a, 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 a divorce. I mean, a lot of resilience going on here, Kathy. Is, now, and, and, and I mean this in a serious way. Does comedy give you something to get through? Like, I understand we're here and we're talking about the shows and the shows are going to be great. Does the act of getting on stage and doing comedy, does that give you, does that give you something? You have no idea. I have what I call a stand-up comedy disorder. The one addiction that I'm happy to indulge because I'm just, as long as I've been doing comedy, which is literally decades now, I never stop writing. So I'm always writing in my head when I go to certain situations like, oh, I don't know, Paris Hilton's Christmas party last week. I mean, that writes itself. She looks exactly the same. She still wears the pink sparkly dresses like she's 14 years old. And she lets me make fun of her. Do you know why? She's so loaded. She doesn't give a crap about my jokes. (laughs) She goes and DJs in Dubai and gets a million dollars for one night. She doesn't give a shit about little Kathy Griffin and her jokes. She calls me an icon, and in fact, we're on a text chain. <laughs> so, 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 doing the comedy is, has been good for you in 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 healing from all this stuff. 
I mean, it's been the main thing, seriously. Like therapy is great and I do it all. I do acupuncture and Kundalini yoga and cupping. I don't know if any of that shit works and I don't care. All I know is I feel better. And the ultimate way of feeling better is knowing I'm going to be okay on that stage. It was like being in a time capsule. I change up my shows a lot. Uh, when I'm in Canada, I'll open the show with probably material about the theater I'm in and the city I'm in because I love local material. But, you know, the audiences know and they've always been very generous about going. She doesn't have this perfectly written monologue where the commas are in the right place and the periods are in the right place. She just riffs and they go with it. It's a ride. It's a relationship. And I can feel them. I can feel when they're rumbling or when they're whispering or when I've shocked them, if people are gasping, which I still do. And it's the thing that's absolutely kept me going. I always, I wasn't sure if I could come back, but I thought if I get the opportunity to come back, I'm going to give it 200%. And that's what I love. Kathy, thanks so much for making the time. I'm, I'm so glad you're back, and, and I'm so glad whenever I get the chance to talk to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're always so good to me, and I really appreciate it. Always uh, interesting to talk to Kathy Griffin. Um, she always has amazing stories to tell, and, and I, I think the last time I talked to her, it was sort of in the middle of the backlash around the Donald Trump photo, so it's nice to hear her sort of on the other side of it. Um, her new tour, My Life on the PTSD List, is in Calgary on February 22nd, in Edmonton on the 23rd, and then back to Canada again this May. The other conversation we have up to today is my conversation with the Canadian actor Supinder Ratch about her new show, Allegiance. Go check that out. I'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.